Paul Osborne here with our look back at 2016, a year in which so very little happened. It's hard to know how we're going to fill the next 45 minutes. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. The government I lead will be driven not by the interests of the privileged few, but by yours. President-elect Donald Trump. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the... This was locker room talk. What the hell is going on? So 2016 uh, began with the death of David Bowie, a sudden, awful shard of news which nobody saw coming. This pretty much set the tone for the rest of a year that ended with a reality show buffoon elected as the leader of the free world. Now, of course, we will get on to him a little later, but let's start with our own political earthquake. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day! I believe the British people have spoken up for democracy in Britain and across Europe. And I think we can be very proud of the result. You know, you have probably forgotten that Nigel Farage conceded defeat 15 minutes after the polls closed on the night of the EU referendum. Michael Gove went to bed absolutely convinced that he would be on the losing side. Now, some Leave campaigners did display a confidence that was seemingly at odds with reality. But most people thought it was impossible that Britain would ever vote to leave the European Union. The total number of votes cast in favour of Remain was 16,141,241. The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 17,410,742. You really can't overstate the importance or impact of what happened in June. A little over 40 years after joining, a little over 17 million people voted to leave the EU. At the end of what may have been, regardless of your politics, the most depressing and truth-free campaign in living memory. Well, Robert Meakin joins me to plough through the events of the past year. Robert, we are inevitably edging towards our first mention of the phrase post-truth politics. But let's go back first to the night of the referendum where you and I were in the same studio at the point where I think we realised that this was not heading in the direction we expected. And we were in the studio with Peter Kellner, who is one of the most respected opinion pollsters in Britain, possibly in the world, and like everybody else, didn't see it coming. And at some point in the evening, just leaned towards me and said, we've got this completely wrong, by the way. Yeah, it, it was incredible. I mean, the uh, the su- supposed wisdom of the time before the result was that it was going to be not, not a, a, a big victory for Remain, but a relatively comfortable. People were talking, say, 52% to 48, 53-47 Remain. And that was the sort of the, the buzzword, the buzz figures going around beforehand. And of course, that was turned upside down. I remember the moment, Paul, I believe it was actually Newcastle, when uh, we saw that it was expected to be very, very heavily in favour of Remain, and they only just about sneaked a win for Remain. And then we thought, hang on a minute, if they're doing, if they're struggling there what's going to happen elsewhere and and then of course the whole house started to tumble down across the country it was an amazing remarkable night when you step back from whatever your views are you just look at well how britain 
responded that that evening it was it was fascinating to watch this uh, the vote was, which was essentially it seemed the the provincial provincial england wales going against the views of London and, and Scotland. It was intriguing. One of the themes that's going to, I think, emerge uh, in this review is that we haven't been terribly good at predicting things. Um, but one thing that we did say was that the referendum would be won or lost in the north of England. And you, you mentioned Newcastle. I think it was um, Sunderland, where we expected there to be a leave vote, was much bigger than we, we thought it would be. And, and Newcastle, where we thought... Oh, yeah, the big cities are all going to vote for Remain. And while it did, it really was quite a narrow victory. And, and that was the pattern of the night, was that even in the places where you expected a Remain vote, the Remain vote was lower and the Leave vote was higher. And, of course, the only vote that mattered in the end was the combined total. And so from pretty early on, from I think it was about half past one in the morning, that it became obvious the direction that it was that it was going in. I mean, it is fair to say that both sides told kind of outrageous Pinocchio-esque lies during the campaign. The Remainers said that if you voted to leave, the sky would fall in, you'd lose your job, you'd probably lose your house, you'd probably live in some kind of post-apocalyptic nightmare, you know, praying for the sweet release of death. Um, and the Leave camp pretended that life outside the EU was was eternal wealth and happiness rolling around in these wads of crisp 50s freed from the hands of these these grasping Brussels con men I mean, it was quite hard to pinpoint a fact in in either campaign and and that's quite depressing that effectively you were choosing your favorite lie or favorite liar hysterical and cynical and as you say depressing the just we go on the remain uh, campaign for a moment easy to criticize it now they lost but it, it, it certainly it certainly was a pretty shabby campaign from the start in the end this campaign kind of boiled down to how people partly how they felt about europe but also how they felt about their own lives and what i don't think a lot of us had grasped is just how strongly a lot of people feel that their lives are no better now than they were a decade ago or more and that if anything in some cases their lives are getting worse that politicians won't help them that don't they don't care about them and that vague promise that maybe things might be better if you left the eu was enough for them to go for it and another theme of the year that desire to give that ruling elite you know, a, a smack in the face, which which has travelled around the world. Yeah, it, 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 it's exactly. It's all those things, and that's why I think it had the real feeling of of a by election or a European election or council elections, where normally, you know, traditionally, you do get this scenario where the the political establish, establishment gets a bloody nose that people react against it and normally then they revert to type of general election more of a european election by election feel where people say no this actually i feel a bit bolder here and actually i do want to i do want to give these people a bloody nose i am angry i am dissatisfied with my lot in life and this is when i'm going to lash out it wasn't at the general election particularly last year but it was at the uh, eu referendum i do still find myself wondering how on earth we managed not to see any of this coming every single region of england bar london voted for brexit 20 of the 25 strongest leave voting areas were labor constituencies mistrust of elites was a massive part of this rebellion and yet those elites who lied over and over again on both sides one of those sides was rewarded for repeatedly lying i didn't spot many voters 
demanding purity and truth during this campaign. Yeah, it, it, it turned into you know, a, a, a very entertaining turf war. Let's be honest, some of the outside, I mean, seeing, seeing the Boris Johnsons, the Michael Goves, the Nigel Farages of this world going toe-to-toe with the, the Camerons and the Osbournes, it was, I, it, it, was, it was a hell of a spectator sport. It, it was cynical, it was packed full of lies and all the rest of it. But I think everyone felt rather, well, not everyone, a great deal of people felt rather emboldened and impassioned by that. So uh, we look back at now, the sort of the message of the um, the Brexit campaign, of course, was a far more enticing one. While on the other side was don't take any risks, don't step into the darkness, blah, blah. On the other side, it's that argument that it's old as the hills where you can actually say, you know why your life isn't very good? You know why you live in a house that isn't big enough? Why your marriage isn't going well? Why you haven't got the job you want? It's because of those people over there. And, you know, those people over there, you know, have, uh, have been, these phantom figures have, have, have formed many a political debate throughout history. And, and the, the Brexit campaign was able to hone that, it turns out, rather brilliantly. It's still not absolutely clear exactly what people have voted for. I think a lot of Leave voters think they voted for very, very tight control of immigration, which is probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to see massive reductions in immigration. No government's managed to do that. And, and, and being outside the, the EU probably isn't going to make that, that problem go away if it is a problem. There's always that risk that the voters who stage this rebellion against elites by believing promises made by elites might not take very kindly to those promises not being kept. I, it's an incredibly precarious time now for the Prime Minister, essentially. I mean, I, she didn't expect to be Prime Minister right now. She suddenly finds herself Prime Minister probably two years plus early in the middle of this most unenviable political situation. By instinct, she is a cautious pragmatic political creature and will look to compromise instinctively she would like to compromise tone down uh, the, uh, the, the the brexit argument but will she really be allowed to will she be able to get away with it and even though right now we in terms of we say how unpredictable 2016 is right right, right now we, we imagine well theresa may huge huge hugely ahead in the opinion poll she's safely going to be re-elected when she next stands at the general election. It's a very, very precarious road ahead for her, with her own party and, as you say, the majority of people who voted to leave the European Union. Will they really be satisfied with the deal that she strikes? I think that's unlikely. Well, a little later, we will use our legendary powers of prediction that have served us so well so often to try and work out what will happen next. That's what I mean, she's safe as houses. Now I've said she's got a precarious time ahead. Yeah, if you would like us, by the way, to uh, to secure your future, do do offer us payment to recommend that your your time is up, or or, or vice versa. If you've got an enemy that you'd like us to do in, uh, we'll cheerfully predict a long and successful career for them. But uh, a little later, we will try to work out uh, how the Brexit train is doing as it rattles towards its unknown destination. But first. We should focus on the first casualty of the referendum result, apart, of course, from the truth. I will do everything I can as Prime Minister to steady the ship over the coming weeks and months. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. This is not a decision I've taken lightly. But I do believe it's in the national interest to have a period of stability and then the new leadership required. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. And I will do everything I can in future 
to help this great country succeed. So a little over a year after leading his party to an election victory that no one predicted, David Cameron was out on his ear. And let's be honest, the only person to blame for this was David Cameron. Uh, Robert, let's just remind ourselves of his spectacular series of miscalculations. He offered a referendum he didn't want because he thought it would kill off UKIP, which it didn't do. He thought he could abandon the pledge of a referendum in return for a coalition with the Lib Dems. Then he went and won the election on his own. He thought that key allies like Gove and Boris Johnson would, in the end, campaign with him to stay in, and they didn't. He thought he could bluff his way through the campaign by scaring the hell out of voters like they did in Scotland, and that didn't work either. And so here it is, David Cameron's political legacy, the man who accidentally took Britain out of the European Union. Yeah, and we all know that's what he's going to always be remembered for now. What will, of course, be generally forgotten, I think, is that Cameron had become a rather, you know, a lucky general, essentially, when you think of the the, the Scottish referendum. Uh, how you know, they got over the line there. Turns out Scotland wasn't big enough. Scotland wasn't a big enough thing to lose. Exactly, yes. And then, you know, the general election again, it was like, no, this all the polls suggesting at the very best scenario for him would be leading another coalition. Not sure if he'd be able to cobble that together this time. Again, he, he, he surprises us. He gets that majority of 11, whatever it was, gets over. The, so you can imagine him coming into the EU referendum thinking, I've... I've, I've, I'm on the right curve here. I've, 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 fortune has been on my side. Strategy has been on my side so far. And of course, then political disaster. I think the whole campaign turns on the day in February when Boris Johnson announced to the world about five minutes after texting Dave that he was going to campaign to leave. I was convinced at the time and remain convinced to this day that Boris Johnson never actually believed in the cause of leaving the EU. And if you want proof, go back and look at the shell-shocked expression of terror on Boris Johnson's face at the news conference the morning after the result. I still think the plan was to win the loyalty of grassroots Tories for a leadership campaign two years down the road. He wanted to be a heroic loser, ideally positioned to take over as Tory leader in, say, 2018. To this day, I don't think Boris Johnson really knows whether it was better or worse to be leaving the European Union. But now he finds himself in this position, as you say, he wanted the scenario, I'm sure, where he could have said, look, I was your flag carrier, Conservative voters, Conservative Party members in particular. OK, we, we, we lost the referendum. We went down fighting and we went down with our heads held high. I'll see you in 2018 when I'll be the next Tory prime minister. I don't think that's an overly cynical assessment of where Boris's uh, ego was heading. But of course, it hasn't worked out that way. Obviously, David Cameron's immediate fall meant that there was a vacancy and that he would consider himself as a winner, albeit a winner in a cause he didn't necessarily believe in, that he would be in a very strong position to do it. Of course, what he hadn't considered was Michael Gove, the silent assassin. That was one of the remarkable House of Cards-like twists of the year when Gove suddenly popped up uh, with the dagger. It was incredible. Before we uh, get on to Theresa May, um, it is it is worth pointing out the accidental nature in which, without that much campaigning, she ended up as Prime Minister. Um, Gove, as you mentioned, you know, wielded the dagger, stabbed Boris in the back, then managed to stab himself in the back, which is quite an achievement. Andrea Ledsom, if anyone remembers her, managed to self-destruct in a single 
newspaper interview. And all Theresa May had to do was just wait silently until she was the last one standing. And then out of nowhere, she's in Downing Street. The government I lead will be driven not by the interests of the privileged few, but by yours. We will do everything we can to give you more control over your lives. When we take the big calls, we'll think not of the powerful, but you. When we pass new laws, we'll listen not to the mighty, but to you. Incredible performance by Theresa May. Yes, I see a series of accidents get to that point. But as you say, she had to stand still and let the chaos unravel, lets the boys all stab each other. And she's the only, only real choice they have. So how do we think Britain's new prime minister is doing and how's that pledge going to help all the people who are who are struggling to get by i i I, obviously theresa may has enormously successful popularity ratings at the moment very high popularity ratings the conservative party doing very well in the polls i'm not sure that that's necessarily about her as much as it's about the fact that all of the alternatives are so much worse and so much less credible than than she is and i just fear sort of long-term looking at her prospects, that the the seeds of trouble were planted in the Home Office, where Theresa May was, by all accounts, very unwilling to delegate, something of a control freak. And that's something you cannot do when you're Prime Minister. Ask Gordon Brown. He's a very good example of what happens when a micromanager ends up as Prime Minister. She's already given civil servants a dressing down for limiting information that they give to her. You've already got ministers who are bristling at being expected to run more and more past number 10 before it goes public now look downing street's a busy place at any time but when you're about to begin those brexit talks the prime minister needs to be focusing on a limited number of things not trying to run absolutely everything yeah and never underestimate the conservatives party conservative party's ability you know to to be brutal in this matter i mean they they think they at the moment can afford to have another big public dust up because they don't think they're going to lose the next election they think they're safe they think their, their seats are safe if if they need to be publicly critical of the leader if they need if they feel the need to cause her serious trouble other party members mps the ex-ministers will do so they think they're 100 miles ahead of the labor party and i think that makes it trickier for theresa may as well i mean let's just take a tiny and inconsequential recent example uh, leather trouser gate Theresa May's photograph for the Sunday Times magazine wearing £1,000 leather trousers. Now, this leads to a lot of idiotic and, frankly, patronising and sexist comments. I'm pretty certain David Cameron probably wore suits that cost a lot more than £1,000, and nobody made any comments about that. But Nikki Morgan, who, let's remember, was sacked by Theresa May criticizes her says oh well it's hard to say you're concerned about people who are struggling to get by when you're sitting on a sofa in downing street in leather trousers that cost a thousand pounds theresa may's response to this is to ban her from downing street now with respect you need thicker skin than that to be prime minister and also when you've got a working majority of what is it 14 and you sacked about a dozen people in the first few days as prime minister thus creating a dozen enemies that you packed off to the back benches you probably need to be a little bit more careful than that about creating enemies within the ranks of your own mps at such an early stage yes her um, long-time aide fiona hill was the was the individual in question i believe uh, took the decision to bar uh, Nicky Morgan from 10 Downing Street. Um, but it's very much a case of, you know, pick your battles 
more carefully. I mean, this this was a fairly trivial item, which would now have been forgotten. It would have been in the Sunday press, whoever it was, Nicky Morgan being critical of a fashion choice, the Prime Minister, you know, few days on. If, if Downing Street hadn't bitten, then the story would have just gone away. It's, it, so it was a, a curious and overly hysterical uh, decision by Downing Street to, to, to make such an issue out of it and, and they've got far far bigger fights ahead than the type of trousers the Prime Minister is wearing for a fashion shoot Well a little later when we get onto the forecasting stage we'll uh, try and figure out how Theresa May might handle Brexit in 2017 but I'm afraid first of all that we can ignore him no longer CNN can report that Hillary Clinton has called Donald Trump to concede the race. She has called Donald Trump to say that she will not be president, and uh, I'm not sure the exact words, but probably to congratulate uh, President-elect Donald Trump. Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division. We have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one United people. It's time. I know, I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. So if Brexit was Britain's political earthquake, then Donald Trump's victory was a globe-shaking terror unleashing a four-year tsunami warning, a tsunami made up entirely of horseshit. Let's just remind ourselves once again of some of the things that did nothing at all to stop 60 million Americans choosing a day-glow carnival barker to be the leader of the free world. Mexico will pay for the wall. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the... This was locker room talk. I've never said I'm a perfect person, nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Uh, Robert, I lost count long ago of the number of times that we said well this is it the trump campaign can't get over this one it's going to disintegrate yet much like a sort of furious cockroach with a wig surviving a nuclear war that is perhaps more likely now than at any time in our lives uh, he has survived and thrived and won and much like brexit we never imagined it was possible it's it's staggering and a, a remarkable campaign on his part whatever you think of his campaign and the individual concerned i mean we go back to when he was just in the running to be the republican candidate how we laughed you know this is this is ridiculous then the fact he was so far ahead early on it was almost like he was some sort of lunatic horse at the grand national running far ahead at the start and we thought well no he's he's obviously going to fall this is this cannot this cannot last the the political establishment the republican party will get him that was our understanding it just he kept going with momentum, going with momentum. We were told one of his uh, one of his Republican rivals was surely going to step forward towards the end and overtake him. It never happened. He took over, he destroyed the Republican Party establishment. Then we were told, well, now, now it's the real battle. Now he's up against the big beast. Now he's up against Hillary Clinton. Right now, now you'll see Donald be exposed for the charlatan he is. 
he was exposed many times, but it, it made uh, not a lot of difference, it seems. In fact, he just he got stronger and stronger. Hillary was not a fantastic choice, to put it politely, as the Democrat uh, candidate. I was always quite sort of downbeat that it got to this state of affairs where Trump was a Republican candidate and Hillary was the Democrat candidate. But he played it brilliantly. His team played it brilliantly. He set her up as you know, the, the establishment figure, the one who's, who can never change your lives. And he, he sold them the dream, however bogus, however ludicrous people think it is. He sold that dream very, very well. He got over the line and he, he confounded all those so-called experts. I do think that if any other Democrat had run against Donald Trump, they would have they would have beaten him. And equally, had any other Republican run against Hillary Clinton, they would have beaten her by an even more convincing margin because, as you say, she was just such a flawed candidate. But what was fascinating, one of the many things was fascinating, Trump makes himself up to be the voice of the voiceless, you know, battling against this Washington insider elite culture. And then he goes around appointing any number of multi-millionaires to his government in a way that implies that it's possible that all of that might just have been, you know, a big stinking lie. Yeah, and, and although part of his campaign, a big part of his campaign was to say, look, I'm, I'm outside the establishment, I'm outside the political establishment, I'm a businessman, I'm a successful businessman, you've seen me on television, you've seen what I can do. And his sort of attitude almost is this now. I, when I was hearing sort of Trump supporters during the election talk, they, they would often say, oh, we're supporting him because he's a businessman. He'll have a different approach. He can make deals. And that, that was, that's what he was, again, able to efficiently sell. It was his business background. And the fact he's now appointing other businessmen makes sense. The common thread, I think, that links Trump's victory um, to Brexit is this uprising against elites who have kind of rather arrogantly taken ordinary voters for granted and you saw this in america that perception that those democrat states in the midwest were just obviously going to vote for hillary clinton you uh, we assumed in the uk that there was this overwhelming weight of expert opinion against brexit would convince people we assumed that people would be as revolted as we were by some of the things that trump said and did during the campaign and actually what people were primarily ready to do was just lob a hand grenade in and see what happens. It does beggar the question now, where, where do you go as sort of as, as, uh, as analysts, as people and trying to understand politics, the pollsters, for goodness sake, what an appalling time they've had. How do we learn to read these situations better? Because that side of the profession, which has a huge responsibility in delivering the news, commentating on the news, has, has an embarrassing time of it, to be frank. And how do they... We, how do people become uh, you know, more aware, uh, more precise in understanding the feelings of people who voted for Brexit, the, the feelings of people who voted for Trump, because they have not been represented properly, they've not been reported on properly, they have not been analysed properly, and that's a big failing of the modern media. It's a big challenge ahead, and it's crucial that they, they get a grip of that. But there's another challenge as well, particularly where, where Donald Trump is, is concerned. I mean, we heard a bit of his victory speech earlier, and it's very calm and very measured, but then he immediately went back to ranting in the middle of the night on, on Twitter. <laughs> yes. How do you report on someone like that when they are president and they are supposed to be given the respect that comes with the office of president? So he claimed a couple of weeks ago that if you ignore all the votes that apparently were illegal, except that they weren't, that he won the popular vote, which he didn't. Now, when it's a candidate who's just saying things that are nonsense and aren't true, that's one thing. When the president of the United States just 
launches into these rants that aren't true, just makes stuff up. How do you report on that? Don't you have a responsibility, don't you, in the way that some American newspapers were doing during the campaign to say, oh, the president has said this, which, by the way, is a load of nonsense. I mean, we're dealing obviously with a completely different sort of creature in terms of a resident of the White House who isn't going to play by the same rules, who does behave like a reality television star, which, of course, we all know he essentially is. Uh, He is also still president-elect, possibly has still more time on his hands to, 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 to be launching these various uh, diatribes on Twitter. I want, it'll be interesting to see once he's actually uh, doing the job, whether it's the same. Now, it may just be that, again, Trump is going to approach the presidency completely differently to anyone else in, in recent uh, times. Whether he's going to be a great delegate and he's still going to have time for being on Twitter every 20 minutes, we will see. Well, I mentioned at the start how 2016 began with the tragic and unexpected death of David Bowie. And then in June, there was another tragic, unexpected and horrifying death. The last 24 hours have felt as though we are drowning in tears for our friend Joe. We've suffered such a terrible loss. Let's aspire to leave behind the venom and the toxicity and the division. Let us pledge to honour her memory every day by building a world where there is more love and less hate. In the tributes that followed Joe Cox's murder, we were perhaps reminded that not everybody in politics is a venal, self-serving liar. Some people, lots of people actually, go into politics because they think it's the best way that they can make a positive difference to people's lives. Now, in the days after her killing, a lot was said about the bitterness of political debate, about the need to clean up our national conversation. And then, of course, within a week, all that was forgotten. The Brexit vote saw hostilities resume. Anyone who questions the strategy is a Ramona. And some of the people on the Remain side just think everyone who voted for Brexit was a racist idiot. Now, I could insert something here about how maybe in 2017 we could all try to be a little bit less hateful to occasionally understand that people can hold opinions that are different to our own and that doesn't necessarily make them awful. But, you know, what's the point? This is where we seamlessly transition from looking backwards to looking forwards. And given the huge success with which we predicted the various events of 2016, you can absolutely take what we're about to say to the bank. So let's start with Trump, because there has never been a president who takes office less prepared for that role, with less relevant experience, fewer smart, talented advisors around them, but also with a huge intray to deal with. Aleppo, Yemen, Russia interfering in one election after another. Regardless of what Trump may have said in the campaign, the world will still look to America for leadership, even if America is being led by a halfwit who couldn't find half of those countries on a map. I think Trump being the sort of creature he he is, the modern media being what it is, I think we're going to be basically talking about the latest Trump crisis yeah, every week, even when we do this show, you know, it will be surely, surely this is the end for Donald Trump. I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're saying that more than once in the coming year, but I'd also bet on him for what it's worth, uh, you know, getting through all that and, and continuing. Trump has so far only bothered with a handful of the intelligence briefings that as president-elect he is entitled to receive every day. He has said he doesn't need to be told these things over and over again because he's so smart uh, that, that he, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't need these intelligence briefings. It's the kind of comment that you have an awful feeling is going to come back 
to haunt them after the next terrible atrocity happens. And it turns out that they were trying to tell him all along of a gathering threat, but he was so smart that he just didn't need to hear about it. And then there's Brexit, because 2017 is when it's all supposed to start in earnest. In fact, by the end of March, we're supposed to have started the giant countdown clock for two years of frantic negotiation. Then again, maybe we won't, because we can't do anything now until the Supreme Court rules on whether MPs have to have a vote first. I'm still not absolutely certain how Theresa May managed to get into this mess, given that most constitutional lawyers you talk to say the law is actually pretty clear about this, that she can't do this on her own and she has to have a vote in Parliament. Now, it's possible the court might say that it doesn't want to wade into such politically sensitive territory. But as the judges have said over and over again, the case is not about undoing Brexit. It's not about reversing the referendum. It's about applying the result of the referendum within our faintly ludicrous unwritten constitution now whichever way that ruling goes at some stage she's going to trigger article 50 but then what we still don't really know exactly what form of brexit the government is seeking what level of access to the single market what rights eu citizens living here will have what rights british citizens in other eu countries will have and I still don't think there is a concrete plan. I don't buy this whole, oh, I can't tell you, Johnny Foreigner's got ears everywhere, you know. I don't buy it. David Cameron's government wouldn't even let civil servants plan for the possibility of leaving the EU. So the idea that six months later, we've just got this perfect plan of what we're going to do is not credible. No, it's not. I mean, what, what we have to accept, if, if we just be reductive about it briefly, is... We are leaving the European Union. I accept that. But B, what I think we also have to accept is that the details of what that departure entails should be in the hands of Parliament. I'm an old fashioned Democrat. And whether I disagree with whoever is in power at the moment or not, I, I think we then that's why these people have been elected. And that's why I, I think the uh, in terms of the, the recent court case was correct and completely common sense. There was, there was a civil war a few centuries ago about this. Parliament decides these things at the end. We have, the, we have had a referendum and we are leaving. That is non-negotiable. But in fact, in terms of the details of that departure, I don't think it's outrageous at all. Whatever you think of the MPs in question, that, that is now debated in Parliament and the details and manner of our departure is determined by Parliament. That's why we voted for them. Now, of course, if Theresa May's government ends up on the losing side of that court case, that is going to be damaging for her, which, which leads me back to the fact that she has a tiny majority and she seems to have a habit of making enemies within her own party by sacking them or banning them from coming within 50 feet of her for saying rude things about her trousers of course to capitalize on this you would need an active professional opposition poised to strike and ready to govern yeah i'm therefore conference delighted to declare jeremy colburn elected as leader of the Labour party please jeremy welcome on this we have much more in common than that which divides us. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned, let's wipe that slate clean from today and get on with the work we've got to do as a party together. How have we got this far into our review of the year without mentioning Jeremy Corbyn? I hear you cry. Have a think about it. When was the last time you heard Jeremy Corbyn say anything meaningful or significant on any of the issues that we've talked about? Now, I know what you're going to say. Typical bloody mainstream media ignoring Jeremy Corbyn. There's nothing I'd enjoy more 
than hearing the leader of the opposition hold the government's feet to the fire. The problem is he's no good at it. He's no better at it now than he was this time last year. But rejoice, for a group of Labour MPs have recorded a Christmas single, which is absolutely guaranteed to end the scourge of low pay forever. Christmas is hard On the national minimum wage At Christmas time We give what some employers take And we know that they have plenty But they give out less and less Stand up against their greed It's Christmas well, that was lovely. That's a new classic to go with Stop the Cavalry. And oh, I'm downloading I'm downloading it as you speak, actually. It's beautiful and it's in no way embarrassing. Uh, look, Labour lost its deposit in the two recent by-elections. In the Richmond Park by-election, fewer people voted Labour in that constituency than there are members of the constituency Labour Party. Now... They're stuck at around 30% in the opinion polls. And I think worse than the opinion poll rating is just you get the feeling that it just... They don't matter at the moment. Nobody pays attention when Labour spokespeople like Diane Abbott or Emily Thornbury start speaking on the television because nobody seriously believes that these people are ever going to be in positions of power. Since the, the summer of 2015, after they lost the election, the remarkable turn of events... Again, no one saw coming where Jeremy Corbyn swept to victory subsequently. Since then, I mean, the, the Labour Party has just been in a very, very difficult, divided place with members of Parliament who don't want him there as leader, a, 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 a party membership of mainly new party members who very much do want him there. And they've been in a state of flux and have continued to do so. They... They're now saying Corbyn, again, has, has, has won uh, very convincingly a second leadership contest this year. But it's still hard for it to be credible when we know what those people sitting around him in the House of Commons think of him. You know, they, they, they don't want him there. And yet the outside membership do. It's strange. So to be an effective opposition force has been has been a tough sell whether they can turn that round in the next few months years remains to be seen right now it seems difficult to imagine there is no way that the tories should be 10 to 15 points ahead in the polls given that they have this straight down the middle schism on brexit you're supposed to be unpopular after election traditionally in, in, in say we talk about political traditions have been chucked out the window recently normally party wins general election then they slump in popularity and the opposition party goes ahead in the polls that's been the conventional way of things over the years now that's very different and this is not good if you're a conservative and we've mentioned this a few times because without a decent opposition the tories have a tendency to become arrogant and lazy and make mistakes and you're storing up trouble for the future and as we said earlier theresa may and people in the conservative party think they can afford to play out all of this brexit argument in public think they can afford to ban each other from downing street and set the set the whips to spy on people and all of this kind of thing because they don't sense that there's any kind of threat and given that we are about to go into one of the most important periods politically that our country has faced in many years that's not good for anybody it isn't at all i fear as the uh, weeks and months progress this is more and more going to be about essentially the parliamentary conservative party 
debating, you know, the, the, our, our future withdrawal of the EU, which isn't healthy for anybody. I think it's going to be that turf war that could end up dominating because Theresa May needs to survive as prime minister. She needs to ensure their support as she's going along. And as you say, that's not um, that's not good for anyone. In terms of the Labour Party, I, mean, I, I think one of the fascinating things potentially for 2017 is how the hell does the, the centre stroke centre left of politics realign itself and become relevant again? How does that argument come back to the fore again? Uh, apart from, as I say, the Conservative Party claiming that's where they are now because they can't the Labour Party in terms of leadership has gone far to the left. I think that's going to be a, a, interesting to see how that plays out in this coming year. So, look, if we were handing out awards which we're not, but let's just play along because we're nearly over. The budget doesn't stretch to an awards ceremony, I'm guessing, this year. The budget barely stretches to a coffee. If we're handing out awards, who would be our winners and losers this year? I think our loser of the year, well, obviously, David Cameron is going to be in the list and Hillary Clinton is going to be in the list. But I, do you know something? I'm going to go for Zach Goldsmith yes. because he's lost two elections inside six months. That's quite an achievement. And, I mean, someone can obviously correct me. I, from what I recall, if we go back to 2015, there are certainly polls suggesting that Goldsmith was very much the favourite to be London Mayor. So to go from that sort of position all the way through to taking a bit of a hammering in the London Mayor election to then losing your seat, as you say, it's been a remarkably bad time for him. So, so those are our losers of the year. But I mean, I think I think winner of the year has to be a joint prize. And, and like it or not, the first recipient has to be has to be Donald Trump. I mean, Time magazine has made Trump person of the year uh, to, to great outrage from many people. But it is worth pointing out that award is about the impact you have. It's not about your virtue. Adolf Hitler was person of the year. Stalin was person of the year twice. Now, there's no reason why I've mentioned those two next to Donald Trump as recipients of the world. I'm just saying Hitler and Stalin also won it. Yeah, I, I think I think we would uh, be deluding ourselves if Trump didn't get that award, to be honest. Um, this year, there's there's no question that has been the, the big story. And, and just as we say now, just trying to work out what happens under President Trump after his inauguration in January is so, so difficult to call. Heaven only knows. And how? How did we get this far without mentioning our other winner of the year, Nigel Farage? Figure of fun, perhaps. But honestly, I don't think any single politician in Britain has had a greater impact on our political life in the last 20 years than possibly Tony Blair but also Farage. Farage has fundamentally remade British political life. This buffoon has turned out to be the most important politician of our generation. Incredible the effect he has had. Essentially, he, he was the reason why David Cameron committed himself to an EU referendum, because his own uh, MPs were nervous about losing their seats to UKIP. They were seeing, they saw the success of UKIP in council elections, obviously in European elections. Cameron was responding to that. He was responding essentially to Farage because Farage was essentially UKIP in terms of its, its uh, electoral potency at the time. So he's done that. He's forced Cameron into a corner, forces him to uh, go for the EU referendum. 
And then, and then, of course, we know what happens after that. And Cameron, he, due to Farage, we then lose the British Prime Minister because the Prime Minister has lost that EU referendum. It all goes back to Farage more than just about anyone else, that EU argument. And it's, it's, it's been an incredible year for him. He's an incredible, successful politician, whatever you think of him, however much he's satirised, he's had a major impact on the political fabric of this country. So there we are, our abiding image of 2016 as we close our review of the year is that picture of Nigel Farage and Donald Trump smiling broadly and shaking hands in the gold-encrusted toilet at Trump Tower. Not necessarily how you want to end a Christmas special, but sadly the Salvation Army Choir were otherwise detained. So uh, so if you're listening uh, over Christmas, Merry Christmas. If it's after Christmas, Happy New Year. We will regroup in January. And, and let's just all make a combined resolution. Can we all just try a little harder next year? <laughs> <laughs>